women would say like finally finally this exists in arabic finally i can read this in my mother tongue or finally someone is saying this we're talking to women about body autonomy the right to make decisions for themselves the right to access information the right to see a doctor there is still this obsession with virginity in our part of the world people don't know this but historically culturally the arab world actually celebrated female pleasure we have our kamasutra books our arabic kamasutra books and female pleasure was at the center of that too it was actually western medicine and western social sciences that deemed female pleasure as a sexual dysfunction a woman who is connected to her sexuality a woman who is connected to her body first and foremost is a real force to be reckoned with Welcome to Mother Podcast. In this episode, I sat down for a conversation with Sura and Noor, the founders of Maj. It's a sexual wellness brand operating in the Middle East. The topic of sexuality is, of course, very sensitive in the region, so I will not be revealing their last names or full identities. What I will say is that even though Maj launched only a few years ago, they're taking off pretty quickly. And they're ultimately demonstrating that regardless how taboo sexual pleasure is in a culture, women will still be curious. Why and how did you set out to create a sexual wellness brand in the Arab world, arguably the most challenging place in the world, to create a sexual wellness brand? What were you thinking? Why? Walk me through that inception point. We weren't thinking. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Obviously, we were not thinking when we launched the brand. <laughs> we never would have otherwise. Just kidding. Um, It was very much driven by the fact that it was time for something to change, that we had both grown up in the Middle East, in different parts of the Middle East, and had very different yet similar upbringings that were unified by the struggle for finding information, reliable information, the struggle of being able to see healthcare professionals when needed, uh, the struggle to even just questions and have conversations about our bodies and our sexuality and our periods. And we both had considered ourselves to be rather lucky compared to most women, rather privileged with the access that we did have, and we struggled so much. And when we had met, we both had felt very strongly that it was time for change, that it's not, this shouldn't be the way that women are living their lives. We shouldn't be feeling that we're at constant war with our bodies and our sexuality and just I, struggling to learn about and live in our bodies in a way that felt truthful um, and easy. And and we knew that we both felt that we wanted to tackle it heads on. We didn't want to just create a brand in the women's health space. We strategically decided to tackle the most taboo topics because we felt that we just have to go there. <laughs> There was a lot happening, I would say, globally. There was a shift taking place globally when it comes to sexual wellness brands. There were more brands popping up, starting to talk about these topics. But there was a real kind of lack in that in the Arab world, in Arabic. And we wanted to give women like us and younger women a better way forward. And the time was now. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned that there was already like at the point when you launched a movement in the West around sexual liberation. How is all of that making its way into the Arab world? Is it at all or is it a completely different 
culture separated from all of the what's happening in the world? I think one of the most important and guiding principles that we have at Moj is that we approach all of these topics with a really strong cultural lens. When we say we're creating a brand bind for Arab women, it means that we're very aware and sensitive of the specific sort of cultural or societal factors or realities at play here. And for example, when you talk about female empowerment as it is in the West, based in part on sexual liberation, I think it was so important for us that we didn't just take this concept and copy pasted it in the Middle East for many reasons. One reason being that is, that was probably the easiest way to make women feel like this wasn't created for them, that it was just an imported concept, which would have been really detrimental to Moja's success. And the other reason is because I think this kind of idea is on a spectrum and sexual liberation is on kind of the one end and we're really operating way before that. So we're talking to women about body autonomy, the right to make decisions for themselves, the right to access information, the right to see a doctor. Uh, In this part of the world, a lot of women in many of the societies in the Middle East, women will not see a doctor before marriage. Uh, They'll just see a GP, but their families will not be okay with them seeing a doctor. Or a woman will not be able to get a pap smear if she's not married yet. There's so many different cases in which women don't have access or ownership of their own bodies. And so that was more where we were starting rather than at the end of the spectrum, which is sexual liberation. I understand. And what does Maj mean? What does that word mean and how does it relate to your mission as a brand? Maj in Arabic literally means waves. But we wanted to show the connection between women's bodies and nature and how we are cyclical beings. And that just like the waves of the ocean or just like the moon tides or the ocean tides, we also have an infradian rhythm that governs us. And so we wanted to make that very clear connection. Also, uh, waves in psychoanalysis represent sexuality and female pleasure. Moj is meant to represent, you know, waves of change, waves of pleasure, waves of women coming together and reclaiming what's rightfully theirs. Oh, I love that. Um, So I wanted to also dig just a little bit deeper into the attitude towards specifically pleasure and female pleasure in the Arab culture among Arab women. What are women's attitudes towards pleasure? Not men's, women's. Are they curious Are they searching? Are they conservative? What does it feel like to be a woman in the Arab world just and naturally inkling exploring your sexuality? Very good question. (laughs) I would say that as far as women's attitude towards pleasure in this part of the world, especially when it comes to sexual pleasure, so maybe we take it back to education. Conversation around sex and pleasure is not something that is happening in many households in general. It's a conversation that's really missing from from young women's lives. And then you know, we always say women aren't talked to or taught about sex, pleasure, and then all of a sudden on their wedding night, they're supposed to flip this switch and become these sexual beings. And that's what results in really high rates of vaginismus and other similar issues. So there is a lack of conversation. There's also a lack of education in the sense that only one out of 22 Arab countries mandates sexual education in schools. So a lot of what you'll find is, and that's Tunisia, by the way. And so a lot of what you'll find in other countries or in schools around the region is either reproductive health classes 
or very kind of fear-based, you know, you're going to get your period, it's going to hurt. If you have sex, you're going to get pregnant and then it's going to be the end of your life. Very fear-based. And female pleasure is almost always missing from that equation. Actually, side note, I took a course uh, with Asset UK, which is an organization in the UK. It was a sex educator course a couple of years ago. And one of the things that surprised me that they said is that in the school curriculum in the UK, even their female pleasure is missing from the conversation. So just to say that it's like a, it's a global thing, but obviously with some very specific nuances in the Middle East. So back to women's attitude to female pleasure, I think that there's a lack of conversation, there's a lack of education, but there's no lack of curiosity. It is perhaps dampened by the fact that there's so much shame and stigma around female pleasure, female sexuality, that women maybe are held back from asking, or as they explore this part of themselves, there's still that little voice in the back of our minds that said, you shouldn't be doing this, this is shameful, you're doing something wrong. So that's why a lot of the work that we do at Moj is dismantling the shame, is breaking down the barriers, the psychological barriers that exist in a woman's mind. Definitely that's made our work more complex in a way, maybe more difficult in some ways, but also more rewarding, is that we're starting at this baseline, uh, we're starting at the very beginning of let's dismantle the shame, dismantle the stigma that will allow women to feel more comfortable asking these questions and having these conversations and researching this. Definitely agree with everything Noor was saying. And it's a little hard to generalize because the Arab world is, is so many countries and it's anywhere in the world, it's hard to generalize about how women see pleasure. But I think the interesting part of what we're trying to do too is historically too, a lot of people don't know this, but historically, culturally, the Arab world actually celebrated female pleasure. And if you look back at old texts, we have our Kama Sutra books, our Arabic Kama Sutra books. And female pleasure was at the center of that too. So historically, even Islamic texts were all about a man should not, a man should not ejaculate before his partner experiences pleasure and has an orgasm herself. And so a lot of what we do sometimes when, yeah, a lot of people don't know this. It's actually, it was actually Western medicine and Western social sciences that deemed female pleasure as a sexual dysfunction, like hysteria and all of that. So we actually were, we were a bit more advanced and then we adopted Western view of sexuality mm -hmm. and pleasure. And that's made its way into the medical field, health field, all of that. So sometimes when we are by our audience, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes when we are accused of Westernizing things or introducing Western concepts, we like to remind our audience that actually this is true to who we are. This is true to our culture. Even the word sex in Arabic, there's, I think, a thousand different words, synonyms wow. for the word sex. And some of them are really beautiful, like honey in Arabic means sex. So there's a lot, there's a lot to uncover. There's so many layers. And I think just helping women recognize that this is actually true. It's first of all, you're right. It's second of all, something we've celebrated as a culture. And third, it's, it's for you to define. There's different ways in there. There's a path for you to take in this space. I think that's so fascinating. That's so fascinating that in a way you're bringing this back into the Arab world rather than yeah. even convincing women or men to adopt this new attitude towards mm -hmm. sexuality. And it's so interesting that in older Islamic texts, this was like a very prominent thing and just not a history buff, but just out of curiosity, at what point in time mm -hmm. did that shift happen And is that shift also related to other things historically in the Arab world, which obviously it is still very prosperous, but it, it was such a center for 
education, trade, innovation, and so many other things. Is there a link between like when things shifted? There's a great book called Taste of Honey by Habib Akande. And his Instagram account anyway is amazing and should be followed. But he's an I think the name is Eritologist, and he speaks about the science of Eritology or the art of Eritology, which was the art of studying human sexuality. And he talks about how many manuscripts saying we had one of the more popular ones that's easy to look up in English online is called something like A Walk Through the Perfumed Gardens or... So do you remember the exact name? I think it's I think it's the perfume garden. Perfume garden. It was a sultan at the time who had commissioned it to be written for him. And it's basically a sex manual. And to answer your question, the way that Habib Akande sees it or his theory is that when Europeans started to come to the Middle East, it was around the Victorian era or when there was like an influx of culture being imported from the West into the Middle East. It was the Victorian era, which brought with it a lot of the kind of prudish beliefs around how women should be and that they should be pruned and that they should be a specific way. And that when things shifted in the Middle East. So that's his theory. And you can read more about it in his book. <laughs> Super interesting. When digging into some of the laws in Lebanon, for example, around rape. So we have a very strange law in Lebanon that actually reprimands the rapist more if the woman is a virgin before she was raped, a virgin by, I don't know, by whose, <laughs> like, in what way you could prove that. But if a woman's a virgin, the punishment is higher than if she's a non-virgin. And when you look into the history of that law, it actually was when the French colonized Lebanon and they introduced this kind of concept into the legal system. So from the outside, it's very easy and quick for us to kind of, even us as Arab women, we tend to stereotype and be like, oh, Arab mentality, so conservative. But a lot of what we've adopted as our own beliefs or our own legal, like parts of our legal system has been things that have come in through like colonial eras. And so we love learning about this stuff. Obviously, there's so much we don't know. <laughs> and there's so much of our history we're trying to uncover. When you start to see the connections, you start to see, you question it more and question, where do these things come from? We don't have all the answers ourselves. We never claim that we do, but it's always good to just question, learn, investigate. Yeah. It just sounds so validating more than anything is that you're almost giving permission by saying, look, this things used to be this way and challenging where some of the new standards actually come from. And you mentioned the law in Lebanon. And another thing I wanted to ask you about is it's easy to generalize the Arab world under one blanket. Can you talk about the diversity across the boards? Like, are there certain countries that are more progressive or certain countries that are more conservative with regards to female pleasure? It's definitely hard to generalize. It's 22 countries that range, you know, all the way from Morocco and West Africa on the one hand, all the way through the Levant and the GCC and so many different cultures and dialects, so much so that I wouldn't understand a Moroccan person speaking necessarily. I wouldn't understand everything they're saying, but even the language is so different, multiple religions, multiple, yeah, there's, it's just a really varied part of the world. But one thing that's always stuck with us, the one thing that seems to unite Arab women across social economic classes, across countries, across religions, etc., is the fact that we've all grown up with this shame and stigma around our bodies, our pleasures, etc. The layers of the cultural conditioning and social conditioning around shame and female pleasure and all of that is what redrives women's behaviors and thoughts. So it's not always the laws 
at play, but more of the mental policing that happened. Mm. And one gynecologist we work with said it so well. He said, they do such a good job at kind of conditioning us and teaching us these things at a young age. They police us so much that we become our own moral polices as we get older. Mm. So we no longer need someone from the outside to tell us that's shameful or that's wrong or think twice before you do that. We do that to ourselves. So that's a lot of the work that we try to do at Moj is trying to break that policing voice or question like, whose voice do you hear in your head when you feel mm -hmm. guilt or you feel shame or you're hesitant to reach out with a question? Is it your voice or is it a voice that you learned or were taught to have? Yeah, that resonates, I think, also everywhere in the world. Um, we all have that voice inside. So that mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. And so education is a big part of your brand. It's something you mention again and again as a challenge or something that's important to solve is to bring more education, more information to women. What is your process of creating and curating content that resonates with and empowers your audience? I can see on your Instagram, I can see how much work is behind this because the byproduct is beautiful, deep, and it's so engaging. Women are so engaged with your brand on Instagram and on social media. What is your process of curating that? What do you think about before you put a post out? Content screen, hit it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're the overthinkers. No, I'm uh, we, we knew from day one when we started Moj that the content and education was going to be our bread and butter. And that was very important that it was culturally empathetic or culturally conscious. What I mean by that is that when we're sharing information with women, it's not For example, if a woman's like, oh, I might think I have an SDI, it's not telling her, okay, go get tested tomorrow. Knowing that for a lot of women, that might not be an easy, easier available solution to their problem. So it's coming at this understanding that meeting women where they are, given that obviously there's huge diversity in our audience, but trying to understand where they're coming at, what they're level, like where their point of entry or level of awareness and education is on the topic and offering them information that's kind of hand-holding. What I mean by that is like it supports them wherever they are on their journey. And from day one, we also decided to tackle this by providing information across four categories. So the way we talk about sexual menstrual health is body, cycle, self, and sex. So trying to come at this more as holistically as possible. So body is anatomy, anatomy, body image, the one-on-ones on all body, female body parts. Cycle is everything around menstrual cycle, menstrual cycle awareness, fertility. Again, the most taboo topics around these categories are things we don't talk about. Self is around relationship with self, pleasure. And then sex is relationship with a partner and pleasure with a partner. We do love to poke at social beliefs and give some sort of social commentary that gets women to question the status quo. Mm. Where can we get them to ask questions themselves, get to that aha moment for themselves? And where can we poke at and reframe and with women rewrite the narrative in this space. I remember when we when we first launched our Instagram mm -hmm. account, it was September uh, 6th, 2020. I remember it because it's 6'9", so I just think of 69. 69, <laughs> 2020. It was meant um, to be. Yeah. <laughs> and so when we first launched Instagram, I remember Sida and I having a conversation where we're like, it's okay. It might be crickets at first. We're going to get a, maybe a few hundred followers over the first few months, but we're going to persevere. And within weeks, we started to have thousands of followers and shares and likes, and it, it, grew it grew so fast. It was incredible. And 
The engagement was amazing. And from day one, what this told us is that we'd really hit on something that was missing. And there was almost like a, the kind of feedback that we received from women, I would say was sometimes relief. Women would say, finally, finally, this exists in Arabic. Finally, I can read this in my mother tongue. Or finally, someone is saying this. We also did some cool content collaborations when we first launched Oh, no, actually, they were a bit later. I'd say 2021 and 2022. One was with Vice Arabia, where we did a sexuality column with, where every month we would answer their audience's question on sexuality. And that was Vice Arabia's most popular piece of content that year. So like all of these little things validating to us every step of the way that we were onto something and we were creating content that our community wants. Sometimes we'll go through a phase where obviously we deal with a lot of shadow bands and issues with meta, which brands in this space do, but we'll use the engagement and the reaction we get from our audience to kind of recalibrate where we are. Are we giving women enough value? Are they feeling the same excitement and passion for the content we're putting out there as they did at first? I also noticed that throughout your Instagram, throughout your content, throughout even interviews that I read about you, there's always really beautiful graphic artwork. Like it's very hard not to notice that it's a big part of your branding. I'm a fan of that. And it's not just pretty images. It resonates emotion. It resonates a state. It resonates like a philosophy. How do you see the role of art, media in advancing conversation about sexual wellness in the Arab world? Thank you for noticing that and saying that. That means a lot to us. And that's definitely our intention. Obviously, visuals are as important as the words we choose. It was really important for us to visually start to represent Arab women or the Arab world a little bit more. And we didn't grow up seeing visuals of women that looked like us in the media. And even till this day, it's actually really difficult, even when we create our content, to find mm. imagery that we can use, whether it's stock footage or videos, just for some of our usual content posts that actually represents what it's like to be an Arab woman, whether it's the darker features, bigger features, different body types, skin colors. And at the, when we launched, we also worked with a different Arab artists, different women artists in the region who we had asked them to create visuals that represent female sexuality, Arab culture, Arab women for them and share that throughout our feed. So we believe that it's part of the greater mission. If we're going to change how we see sexual wellness and see our bodies, we also have to visually start to see ourselves represented in that, start to resonate with, well, oh, these women look like me. This is also, these body shapes are normal. This hairstyle, curls is a very big one amongst our team members too, where they've fought their curls their whole lives and now are embracing them. So it's always just like small things that seem so minor, but that actually resonate so much with women and have that impact on them consumer of content that you're talking to these days is exposed to so much beautiful content on Instagram and TikTok. And it doesn't mm -hmm. cut it anymore not to have a beautiful brand. And also, I think having an aesthetically pleasing brand that is easy on the eyes makes some of the content we're talking about more digestible, less threatening, more, not so much in terms of our Instagram content, but in terms of the way that we've shot product or the way that we've thought about product packaging, etc. We like to look at the world of beauty and cosmetics and bring that aesthetic in because that is a world that women are comfortable in. So again, it's about using visuals and, and these cues to create more of a comfort with the topic that we're talking about.
And actually, on that note, I wanted to talk about your products and specifically start talking about your first product, Deem, which is a vibrator. Again, can you talk me through the process of design and creation of it? What considerations did you have that catered specifically to Arab women when you were designing the product? Definitely. We picked an interesting challenge. And a lot of people ask us, why did we start with a vibrator? Why did we start with something else? We always say, because what's more shameful than female pleasure? We launched Deem One in 2021. We first started to drip feed it via DM to some of our community members to gauge their comfort level with it before we went out publicly with it. And so the whole idea of Deem was to create a product that beginners would be comfortable with, women who'd never owned a pleasure product before. And that didn't feel intimidating, that could maybe pass us something else. Deem One is small, purple, cute, not intimidating. <laughs> the most important thing for us was, the thing that was at the forefront of our minds was, how is an Arab woman going to feel when you talk to her about a vibrator when you know she's been told that this is off limits to her, that her pleasure is shameful, she shouldn't even be looking at these products or thinking about these products or thinking about that part of herself. But we did a lot of hand-holding, a lot of education. We have 24-hour customer service in Arabic, for example. Not a single brand that offers pleasure products offers that to women. So we really built and geared this brand towards Arab women. We wanted them to feel like it was created for them. Everything from the way we communicate about the product to the way we package the product and we, the way we ship the product. So discretion and privacy are of the utmost importance to our audience. The name that appears on your credit card receipt, for example, isn't Moj. Um, the name that appears on the shipping label isn't Moj. The product is packed in a beautiful box that could house beauty products, but doesn't have a brand name on it. You know, if it's intercepted by someone at home, if it's a woman living with her parents, she has very little to fear. And in fact, we've heard from one of our customers that she walked around the house. She walks around the house using Deem on her face and as a face massager, so that if her mom were ever to find it in her drawer, she wouldn't be suspicious. But that's how much it could look like something else. When we say we created the first vibrator vibe for Arab women, it's not so much that an Arab vulva is different than an American vulva or European vulva. It's that the concerns and needs of the customer are different. And it was about getting so crystal clear on what those were, what the barriers were, what could be holding her back, what she needed to understand in order to be comfortable buying this product. I love that. So it also goes back to what you said earlier about the spectrum and you almost starting a bit more like middle of the spectrum and gently hand-holding your customers, women, down the journey rather than shock factor, which would be much harder, I imagine, to adopt and get people into conversation with. What kind of reactions did you get since starting the brand, since launching your first product? And specifically, was there anything that like surprised you? Before you dive into how it was received, one of the things that we kept in mind was the fact that there is still this obsession with virginity in our part of the world. Um, and this idea that you can tell whether a woman has had sex or not by looking at her hymen. And therefore, anything that was penetrative was going to be an even bigger obstacle psychologically for women. And we, that was one of the big considerations that we had. And the other one was actually creating a product that would not be um, alienating her partner in the bedroom. And we've obviously been successful with that because we have actually, I'd, I'd say about 15% of our customers are men who are buying for their girlfriend or their wives or whoever it is. Yeah, that was a really interesting observation to see that we've communicated on that really well. 
in terms of reaction, we were we so we had launched Moj in September 2020. We launched Deem June 2021. So it was a few months out. We had built some trust with our audience. We had showed them shown that we truly care about the wider mission. This wasn't like this big brand coming in from you know the outside trying to sell them something, but this is from women who think like them, who have similar experiences like them. So when we launched Deem, we had no idea. We're like, are women gonna flip their shit and like you know are we gonna lose a bunch of followers? Are we gonna get reported? What's gonna happen? So we did slowly share first through DM and then publicly on our page in June, and we have. We have to say we were so pleasantly surprised and grateful for the reaction we received. It was overwhelmingly positive. There was We did see a lot of sales from the beginning, but I think what was even more incredible was just that out spoken support, people reposting it, sharing it, more for like what it symbolized to women of, yes, we should mm-hmm. be able to talk about this. We should be able to own this a little piece of technology to help us with our pleasure and our bodies. And we of course had some haters, I think maybe less than 10% of the reaction we received was a negative reaction, but we did get some religious commentary and response or some people who were like telling us this was, this is forbidden in the region. And we had our way of answering that. We did. We do take um, a community management very seriously. We want Moj to be as safe of a space for women as possible. Mind you, that so- social media is not a safe space. Hmm. But we tried our best to not let other people's reactions affect women who were interested and curious. So we would... Where we felt it was possible, we would engage in conversation and answer and be like, why do you think that way? Let's talk about this. And where we felt it was like a strong hater who was just going to come in and shame other women, we did block them or we made sure that they were not able to infiltrate on the conversation. And uh, yeah, for some women, it's an immediate, oh my God, I've been looking for this. I can't believe I can order this to my house. Bam, into add to cart. For other women, it's a much longer process where tell me more, tell me, show me how I can use this. Tell me that I can receive this to my house discreetly, that no one is going to find out again, that this is private at the end of the day. And we want to ensure that we can make her feel that way. And so for these women, it's that handholding over a few months to get them or whenever they're ready for a purchase. Yeah, makes sense. I also love what you mentioned before about men and getting men involved. And you did this post on Instagram called, I think, Dear Dad, where you wrote letters from the Maj team to your fathers. I absolutely loved it. I 100% teared up and I wanted to ask, actually, I'm going to try to read one out if I can keep a straight face. (laughs) I thought it was so special. So if you don't mind, I'll read one of them out. I'm not sure which one of you this was from, but here it goes. Dear Dad, the day I first told you about my dreams of launching Moj, you sat next to me and showed me how to build a financial model. You answered my questions and validated my thoughts, giving me the courage to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You asked, how are we going to tell your mom? (laughs) And I laughed and said, one thing at a time. Oh, I thought this was just amazing. Yeah. How that can you talk me. about you? Yeah, I knew that. I don't know why I knew that was you. I don't know why. Like, hearing you read that made me really 
tear up. Interesting. I knew that was you. I swear. (laughs) I swear I knew this was you. I'm not just saying it. For some reason, the whole financial model side of it, I was like, I can totally imagine. (laughs) That's like, that's that's Nora with her dad. I can see your dad in you somehow, that very businessy attitude or something. I remember that day so well. He, I called him. I was like, I want to talk to you about something, dad. And can you come over? And so he came over and we sat in the dining room and I took him through what I was thinking. And I was like, this is how I think we can make it work. And this is kind of the profit margin we'd have on this. And he's like, how are you going to tell your mom? And actually, I didn't end up telling my mom until way later. Um, maybe I would tell I came over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Six months until Sura came over to stay. And my mom was like, nice friend, who's this? And I was like, there's something I need to tell you. <laughs> I think this this piece was really important to all of us because we're blessed with really great relationships with our fathers. Sura and I are both really close to our dads who've been so supportive of us throughout this whole journey. And maybe Sura, you want to tell your story about telling your parents, I don't know. But yeah, so it meant so much. And his support and both of my parents' support at this point means the world. Can you say the story? Or no, no? Sorry. Yeah, 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 I can. I thought you were about to say more. I was wanting no, I wanted I don't to say about this. Room. I'm still coming down <laughs> from the emotions. The emotions. No, I got emotional too while she, when she read it. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. We both had really amazing experiences with our parents about this. It, I told my parents about Moj when we launched, so they knew about Moj before we launched it. I don't know if we mentioned, but Nuri and I live in different countries, so we weren't seeing each other every day. They, my laptop became synonymous with Nuri, so when I was walking around, they'd be like, oh, hi, Nuri, because they knew she was on the other, the other end. But it took me months to tell them about Deem. And my parents were always curious. They believed in the purpose, but they they kept asking, how are you going to make money? How is this going to be a sustainable business model? You guys are just putting education out there, which they understood was important, but they are having a harder time understanding the, how are you going to take this to the next level? And it actually wasn't until we did the Deem photo shoot that I mustered up the courage to tell my parents. Um, mind you, I was in, I was already 30 something at that point in my early 30s, and I was very open with my parents, but still that's that speaks to the shame that we carry for so long that I sat them down. I was like, I have something to tell you. <laughs> I remember going to get Deem and giving it to them to touch and hold. And it was a very, it was a very heartwarming and funny experience. And the next day I received a text message from my dad saying, I'm so proud of you and everything that you're doing. And then every time I would walk into his office, uh, he's a doctor. And every time I walked in, there was one time I actually was with Nuit and we walked into his office and he like, pulled up our website in front of his colleagues and it was showing them our guides and showing us, showing them the product and all of that. And that was just like, wow. I knew my parents were always, and I'm going to get emotional too. I knew my parents were always very supportive, but it's just that culture of the shame was so overwhelming that it blinded me from that unconditional support and love I always received from my parents. It even got in the way of that for me. And when I told them, since I've told them, I felt that the journey has even opened up more and my dad embracing it and my dad talking about it and telling his friends about it was like, that broke another huge, huge barrier of shame or huge, I don't know what to call it. Like It broke a generational cycle in our families. Yeah. But uh, Karina, welcome to at least six months of therapy. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you're getting the condensed version of at least six months of therapy work. <laughs> no, thank you. I do appreciate it to share it. I know you posted this on Instagram, but I just know like how special this is. And it's just such a reminder how much our, like, it's not just women building for women, how much men and our fathers play a role. And I know this kind of environment and this kind of supports can encourage what you're doing, which is going to have an impact on so many women. So I think it's just so beautiful. Yeah. We're very lucky in that sense. I say also our partners are super supportive. Our brothers, our brothers have been, uh, both of us have younger brothers and probably one of our top champions who are like, especially when starting a business, all the financial modeling, all the fundraising that we've done, they've been very much, we totally believe in you. This is so important, which is, yeah, it's like, we can't do this alone. This is not on women. Men don't join us in this. If men don't believe um, that there's a better way for all, it's going to be very hard to turn the tide. So it's been incredible to see it. Beautiful. So you're talking about that there's a shift happening and it's obviously really exciting and encouraging. Is it just about sexual pleasure? So something I'm fascinated with, is there, like if we unlock on an, even an individual level, if we unlock sexuality, our access to sexual pleasure, do you think there's something else that we're unlocking in ourselves? Could it be creativity, autonomy? Is it a bigger picture? Like is unlocking sexuality in women in the Arab world, could it kick off a revolution or a movement or an effect beyond having sex and beyond the bedroom? I think our lawyers would advise us heavily against using the word revolution when it comes to talking about the Arab world. <laughs> <laughs> say, a mild perspective. <laughs> I'm joking. Fair enough. Um, I just, <laughs> excellent question. Mm-hmm. I would say definitely yes, because of how interwoven everything is. To access your pleasure from a place of from a place where you feel ownership of your body, you feel knowledge and autonomy and comfort within your own body to get to that point you have to unlock so much culturally society is that even a word socially that's the word socially (laughs) culturally socially english is not my first language um uh socially even uh, physically mentally etc so it's tied into so much that i can't imagine that it could exist in a vacuum and then you ask is it tied to creativity and so on Sura and I both very much believe that female sexuality and creativity stem from the same source. A woman who is connected to her sexuality, a woman who is connected to her body first and foremost, and her sexuality and her pleasure as well, I think a real force to be reckoned with. I think pleasure and sex is one manifestation of women being at peace or with themselves or feeling fully embodied and like coming home to ourselves when we started to explain why this is important, like why sexual wellness is important beyond the obvious, like, you know, unintended, like lowering the chances of pregnancy and abortion and all of these things. But on a micro, which leads to a macro level, it's women being comfortable with themselves and women feeling comfortable in their own skin and feeling that they have a voice that they can speak up. And that how that actually manifests in day-to-day life allows women to actually take bigger roles 
in everything that they do in society at large. And I think that sometimes is the hardest thing to explain because we take sexual wellness and sexual health at face value. And sex and pleasure, of course, are so important, but they're just one aspect. We deem success as at Moj as being able to help women find that within themselves, come back to themselves, feel a sense of home within themselves to be able to be show up as they truly want to show up in different aspects of their lives. I love that. And I think it's exactly why it's so important <laughs> what you're doing, again, especially in the Arab world, especially mm. in a culture that has been so conservative and taboo about this, because I feel like mm. when you succeed and when you push the needle forward, it's not just about sexual pleasure. It could unleash women's entrepreneurial creativity, political creativity. Yeah. yeah, it could change the region. It could really change the region. I believe that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because there's, I always find this also interesting about the Arab world is women do play such a big role in in the family household. I don't know if you'd agree, but I feel like grandmothers and mothers are the ones who make a lot of the decisions in the household and they're very highly respected socially. They are given great regard. I think when it comes to more of a public role, in an attempt to, we talk about this a lot, in an attempt to protect women, in an attempt to say, like, we highly regard you and we want to protect you. Very big double-edged sword. There's a lot of also manipulation and control that comes with it. And I think sometimes there's the lines get blurred there and can attempt to protect you. I'm going to shield you and I'm going to do, but it, it's a way to control women. So helping women and men also realize how detrimental that is to a woman's mental health, physical health and existence and helping shift that is, it's a big undertaking, <laughs> but it's in the small, it's in the small, it's in the small moments. And yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying, Karina, about there's a much bigger role for women to play in our societies. It's getting them to recognize that and getting them to realize that potential. Yeah. For anyone listening that wants to make a difference in sexual wellness or is building a brand or is doing advocacy around the topic in societies, cultures that are more conservative, whether it's religion or something else that's mm. making sexuality for women specifically, and maybe for men, super taboo, what advice, what top advice would you give them in the item, in persevering and in building a brand or in changing the narrative? Good question. Ooh. I see your wheels turning, Nuri, so I'll let you yeah. go first. No, I think the first thing that came to mind was to meet your audience where they are or to meet people where they are. I would advise against trying to just replicate things that have worked in the West here or content that's worked in the West here and to really come at this from a culturally relevant lens, which we've spoken about a lot. Be connected to your community. Don't underestimate that. Know who you're talking to inside out. Know their psychology, their blocks, their fears. Understand why they're having a negative reaction to something. The words to use, the words not to use. We spend so much time getting so intimately familiar with our community that at this point, you know, we understand how to coax them forward, how to guide them and handhold them forward on this journey. So I think for, that would be like my number one piece of advice. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, that's one thing we actually didn't touch on, but when we first started, we couldn't keep up with the number of DMs we would receive on Instagram. Women so wanted someone to speak to or somewhere to go. 90% of the messages received are just wanting to be heard wanting to be validated by someone that I'm normal, that 
nothing's wrong with me. They're not actually what we thought we'd be receiving, which would be like a lot of very medical questions. So to Nora's point, it's like listening to your audience. What are they telling you? What are they asking you? What do they want more of? And giving them space to feel to feel valuable and important and part a part of this journey that we're building this together. It's not our personal stories. It's the collective. Love that. That makes sense. And I mean, you've throughout this interview, you've touched on so many things. I think that if anyone is doing this sort of work anywhere else in the world can take pieces and learn just as to how to approach this. And it's, I think it's very inspiring. And not to be scared. I think that's like, I think trust your gut. And I know that's a very old, a big cliche. We don't take no as an answer very easily. We we know that we're operating in a quite a sensitive space. We're up against a lot of cultural and logistical challenges, may I say? Yeah. I mean, we consider this is the first time that pleasure products have been made available to Arab women in this way, pioneering an entirely new category and making pleasure products available to Arab women continues to be challenging in many ways, but we don't take no for an answer. We're incredibly resourceful as a team. So yeah, I like that piece of advice. Last question before we wrap up, what's the vision for Maj? What's next? And specifically, if you had all the resources, if you knew you couldn't fail, if you had the magic wand, you know, whatever it may be, like if you could do anything, what would you make ha happen with your brand in the next, let's say, three to five years? Like, I'll give you the business answer instead I will give you the like, we're changing humanity answer. <laughs> I'd like both. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna be creating more vibrators this year we've just signed a really exciting partnership with one of the biggest uh, brands in, in europe and in the west and we'll be licensing some of their technologies so that's huge and coming your way and we've got two new pleasure products coming out this year and continuing to build out that, that pipeline of products we've also just launched a line of sexual wellness accessory products so our lube was our first um we've got an amazing pleasure oil coming out and then a few more products coming out after that. And these products are very much built according to the same principles as our vibrator, which is that they're buying for women. So they're always better for you, ingredients, um, pH balanced, etc. And they also take into account Arab women's needs for discretion. So for instance, we heard from our community that when they buy lubricant, they, they'll take it home and they'll scrape the label off if they did with family or something like that. So what we did for them is an easily peelable label. So just like little tweaks here and there that tell women like this is made for you. We hear you, we see you and we know where you are. So obviously creating, continuing to create our, our products is a really big focus. We're also exploring new avenues for retail and distribution especially for our sexual wellness accessory products. So we always say we want to see them, you know, in the in the Middle East, at least, like in a lot of, of countries here, if you want to buy condoms or lubes, you have to go and take them, you have to go and buy them from the men's shelves. So they're next to the razor blades and the shaving cream. And that sends a message to women that sex, sexual health, protection, all of these things are considerations for men. They're things that men, that are just for men. But we really want to see a brand that sits on shelves next to your period products and your other intimate products. And, and that tells women you have a right to sexuality, you have a right to your body, you have a right to protecting yourself. It's a lofty mission, but I think it's a, it's really something that is very dear to me. And I think if when we get there, when the day comes where we have all of our products sitting on shelves next to other women's brands, that'll be like a, an incredible day. Um, and then lastly, we're currently building out our community offering. So watch this space, but we're building out a tech product that helps women connect to each other, to the team and to experts 
around their sexual and reproductive health. Thank you for this. It's been a while since we've got to take a step back and reflect and answer questions yeah. about Moj and what we're doing. I always find that it re-motivates me and reminds me of how grateful I am to get to have Nude as my partner and get to do this. What a blessing. Right really. back so Thank you. you. Thank you for this opportunity. No, thank you. Thank you for agreeing to do this. I know there's kind of had to be yeah, mindful of different topics. And, yeah, thank you. And I honestly, ever since uh, I heard about your brand and ever since I opened your website and your Instagram for the first time, I just had a feeling that what you're doing is really special. And like we talked about, it just goes way beyond sexual pleasure. And it's just something that has the potential of changing how women show up in the Arab world. That's the reason why I was like, oh, these girls, I want to get them on the show. I want to talk to them. But thank you. Thank, thank you, you so for much. everything. Thank you so much for, for this yeah. platform and for the support that you show founders yeah. in this space. Honestly, it's invaluable. If you enjoyed this conversation, check out Maj on social media. I'm going to include all the links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Mother Podcast on your favorite podcast app. There are more episodes coming next week.